You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com. Joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. No guests today, and that's okay because we're in the final week of the regular season and there is a ton to talk about. We're going to get into some awards talk and get into some playoff previews. And first, we are going to talk about what is going on with the National League MVP. Matt, I think you would agree with me that for, I don't know, the first six or seven weeks of the season, it was like, Fernando Tatis is going to win this. Let's go home. And now I feel like it's not so sure. It's like a four-way tie between Tatis, Freddie Freeman, Manny Machado, maybe even Mookie Betts. And I guess what I would say is between this and the National League Cy Young, I'm sort of stoked I don't have a vote because I don't want to have to pick, right? Like they can't all be as easy as Shane Bieber is going to win the AL Cy Young Award. We did on MLB.com, we did a poll, an awards poll like two weeks ago. And Tatis, I think was like, had all but two first place votes. And now, I mean, it's, I looked at it over the weekend and, and Mark Feinstein wrote about this. His teammate, Manny Machado, now has more home runs a much higher batting average, a higher on-base percentage, <laughs> and a higher slugging percentage. And while I usually do place a premium on up-the-middle players, um, Machado still plays a, a fairly premium defensive uh, position at third base and plays it well. So I'm not even sure if Tatis is the MVP of his own team right now. And then you have, you know, Freddie Freeman, who kind of quietly is, <laughs> like, having an absolutely bananas season. And like I think that if the season ended right now, Freeman gets it. And we're recording this on Wednesday, you know, four days. You know, if we I guess we have five full days of games before the end of the season. So a lot could actually not a lot could change, but some things could change in that time. What's what's your kind of take right now? Well, there is something wild about Tatis, and that is we we alluded to this a couple of weeks ago. Last year he was maybe the worst defensive shortstop in baseball. And right now, by outs above average, he is tied for the best defender in baseball. So that counts to me. That's really cool. Here's the things I don't care about in awards voting. I don't care about how well your team is doing. It doesn't really matter in this case because the Braves and the Dodgers and the Pirates, uh, excuse me, the Padres are all going to make the postseason. So that's fine. And I don't really care about like the stretch drive. I know people like that the guys who who finish hot should get extra credit. I generally don't care about that, except for this year. I think maybe I will a little bit because if you're going to be cold for the last three weeks of the season, um, as Tatis has basically been right in September right now, he's hitting 200, 312 on base, a 338 slugging. Like he's really kind of fallen off here. Um, that's like 30% of the season. <laughs> so that actually is going to affect his season long stats, which is generally all I'm going to look at anyway. I'm having a hard time. I get the Machado case. Like I really do. Um, as you said, Feinstein wrote about it. He reached out to me for stats help. And I, like the jerk I am, kind of laughed at him like, Machado, he's got no chance of winning. What are you talking about? Um, he's right. Machado has a very good chance of winning. But when I compare Freeman and Machado, Freeman has uh, an edge in on base percentage by like 80 points and an edge in slugging by 40 points. And is he as valuable as a defender as Machado is? No, he's a pretty good first baseman. Um, I, I am having a hard time finding the argument for it to not be Freddie Freeman right now. 
Do you put any, what about, do you, do you have any thoughts on, as someone who says you don't believe the team record to come to account, do you consider Juan Soto in this discussion or do he miss too much time for you? He missed too much time. I don't care that the Nationals are terrible. I, I do care in a short season. So right now he's got 179 plate appearances. The other guys are all around 240, right? That's not a big gap over six months. It's kind of a big gap right now. So even though I do think Soto is the best hitter in the National League and, you know, along with Trout, probably the best hitter in baseball, it, it's it's too much for me, too much time he missed, I think. I, I mean, I, I I mentioned this last week and I'll 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 say it again in that in normal years, I don't really care where a player um, team is in the standings. I, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have a. I mean, I, I, I am a member of the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America, but I've never had a vote. The New York chapter has many, many potential voters, and I've never been been called on to vote, and me, that's fine. Me neither. Me, me neither. <laughs> if I were a voter, I would not take team record that much into account. It'd probably be kind of a tiebreaker, maybe like a tiebreaker for me if things were close, because I think there is something to be said for kind of performing in games that quote unquote matter more. Um, this season, however, I think I put a little more stock in it, as I think I said last week when talking about the AL award. I think that like part of the reason I wouldn't vote for Trout this year, as good as he's been, although he's actually maybe now not even, um, he's like ninth in the American League in, in war as a starting point, obviously in a 60 game sample of war is not that exact but the point being he's not like a clear but the reason why i wouldn't vote for trout this year even if i thought that like maybe he was the best player is that like his performance is not really part of like the story of this season you know in a normal season at least like there are these statistical milestones that that carry weight and are kind of generate excitement whether it's a chase of 40 40 or a chase of 50 home runs or you know anything of, of that nature this year we don't really have those those same kind of counting stats benchmarks so to me, there is definitely more of like MVP, like, okay, what is the story of this, the um, the 2020 season? In the NL for the first, you know, two months, it was Fernando Tatis, and it seemed like he was running away with it. And now it's like, hey, you know, and in many ways, it's it's Freeman. It's, you know, the Braves winning the division. Again, Freeman, who he was, he, he missed most of summer camp because he was recovering from, from COVID-19 and had a really bad case and is now like, you know, Hitting 347, 463, 643, which is like Barry Bonds esque. So um, I, I'm with you. I think if it, it's it's um, it's it's Freeman. I don't want to say it's Freeman's to lose, but it's it seems like he's going to run away with it. Not run away. He's going to get it. The issue with Mookie Betts is I think that it's almost like he's penalized by the fact that the Dodgers were already a juggernaut when he joined. So it's kind of like, well, like well, it's like it's almost like when the, the Warriors got Kevin Durant. And it was like, well, they didn't really need this guy to, <laughs> to have the best record in the league. Um, it's great that they did, but it just it just feels like an embarrassment of riches. Of riches. You know what makes me happy, though? We we had talked so much about what a shortened season would mean, right? Like, what does a 60-game season look like compared to 162? And the guys we're talking about here, Freeman, Tatis, Machado, Betts, you mentioned Soto, those are all legitimate superstars. Like, those are all guys you could see winning this award in a full season. It's not like, oh, wow, I don't know. Juan Lagares had the best two months of his entire life, and he's going to walk away with this MVP. And I think that's true. You know, even if you look at the AL, it's like a six-way tie. But who are the guys that are tied? Like Jose Ramirez and Trout and uh, Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson and, and DJ LeMahieu and these guys. I think whether this is enough baseball to have a full season, you know, we can argue about that. But I'm pleased that the quote-unquote right guys. Um, are in the mix. And since you mentioned it, since you brought up the BBWA, I don't know if people understand how the voting is done here. The way it's always been done is two voters per market are selected, right? So two from Atlanta, two from Baltimore, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, 
been the case for, I don't know, forever, maybe, because the idea is you get to see a lot of the league coming through your town. Well, this year, we don't have leagues. There's no such thing as a league. We will have an NL MVP and an AL MVP. We don't really have an NL and an AL. We have three leagues. We have an East, we have a Central, and we have a West. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, Let's say, and I don't know if this is true or not true, hypothetically, uh, a beat writer for the Diamondbacks in Arizona gets an NL Cy Young vote. That person will have seen DeGrom, Burns, Bauer, and Darvish, and Max Freed zero times in person, which I think is kind of, I don't actually care if you get to see the guy in person, but I think that that uh, method of, of selecting voters is antiquated because then it's not just how good were you? It's, well, what kind of guy gets the vote? Man or woman gets the vote? Is it someone who cares about advanced stats? Someone who only cares about fielding percentage? Because I saw a whole article about that today. Um, I don't like that idea. It's never made sense. And I think now it especially doesn't make sense. We should open it up um, to a larger electorate. You and I are both members, by the way. We've never had votes. So I guess this sounds like bias on our parts. But I'd be happy even if I got personally eliminated from having a vote. And we still did that. There we go. I did a rant before we got to our rant. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm 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 with you. I don't even really care that much about having an awards vote. I, you know, it's it's. I think it's, it's it does feel like a relic from a bygone era when like there was no MLB.tv or extra innings where you couldn't really watch players in other markets. It was a way to sort of control to make sure that there wasn't quote unquote um, an East Coast bias. And I think I think it's pretty clear over the years that there has not been any sort of East Coast bias. And I, so I guess it's worked in the fact that like you know Derek Jeter never won an MVP. There's still no New York Met player that has ever won an MVP. Um, so I think to, to that extent, it's probably, quote unquote, worked. And, the, you know, the New York chapter is bigger than a lot of other chapters. So maybe if they opened up to everyone to vote, there's concern that it would skew towards, you know, the East Coast or towards New York for that matter. But then you're sort of saying, well, then the people, you don't trust the people to be objective. <laughs> well, there's that. Not, which is not really great um, uh, either. I mean, I live in New York. I've probably watched more White Sox games than any oh, yeah. on New York team this year, um, just because I think they're the most entertaining, most entertaining team. Um, so uh, it's it's definitely weird this year more than ever. And I'd be curious so if there was every year to test it. It feels like this would be the year to just test it because we're testing all these other things. Like let's test it for a year and see how it looks. Not everything needs to be forever. Uh, I will bring this up at the winter meeting and find probably get a history lesson about how we voted in 1902 or something. It's going to be great. All right, that was our opener. Let's move on to our three batter minimum. We have selected three interesting topics to get to this week. The first one is, as you probably know, the wild card round this year has been expanded from one game to three games. There will be eight different three game series or best of three. So maybe two games um, because home field advantage is super wonky and weird this year. The team that finishes first gets to bat last, but they don't really get much of a home field advantage besides from that. And three games is simply not that much. You can have an upset in seven games. You can have an upset in five games. You can certainly have an upset in three games. So I actually dug into the math to try to figure out how often this happened. Um, I, of course, cherry picked my absolute favorite example from last year, this is in June of 2019. The Orioles, who were obviously terrible last year, faced the Indians, who were very good. This is on June 28th. The Indians started Mike Clevenger, who's really good. Baltimore won 13 nothing. The next day, the Indians started Zach Plesac, who's pretty good. Baltimore won 13 nothing. <laughs> and now I get it. I cherry-picked like the most egregious example. But if you're thinking about best of three, like over the course of six months, you know, could the Yankees lose to the Pirates two out of three times? Absolutely. Would anybody notice if it happened in June? 
Never. It's like meaningless. Um, and before I throw the numbers out at you, Matt, how I don't want to say worried, but like how concerned are you that some very good team is going to get bounced by a much lesser team because three games is more or less a coin flip? Oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, this is this is, you know, this is going to be more akin to probably the NCAA tournament than than even, you know, uh, in terms of randomness than uh, their typical baseball playoffs and baseball playoffs are usually, you know, kind of they're they're kind of random in their 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 own right. So it's not like you know we're kind of used to sort of this randomness. The, one, the example I always kind of think of is like the um, uh, the 2014 ALCS, which was Tigers Orioles, and even that year the Tigers like weren't that like great, but they just like they had just acquired David Price at the deadline. And there was this feeling that like, they were going to be like, Oh, this team is built for the postseason. Like you are not going to be able to stop this team. Scherzer, Verlander, Price, Rick Porcello, who was like, you know, an emerging starter, like NFL Sanchez was their number five. It was like, like watch out. And then like, you know, the Royals just steamrolled them, you know, three, nothing. And it was like over like before you could blink. And that's what's going to happen this year is you're going to have some team who looks like a juggernaut and it's going to even be quicker than that. You know, it's going to be like, they're going to play like, Two noon, a noon start on Tuesday and a noon start on Wednesday, and they're going to be some team, some NL team that hasn't even played yet, and there's going to be an AL team that's already already gone. Um, well, since you brought up the 2014 Tigers, I have to have to talk about them briefly because they're one of my favorite sort of forgotten teams. They had three no doubt slam dunk Hall of Famers, right? Miggy, Scherzer, Verlander, and also JD Martinez and David Price and Rick Porcello and Eugenio Suarez and Nick Castellanos and Robbie Ray and Victor Martinez and Corey Knable. That. That team, I know those guys weren't all good yet. Like Suarez wasn't a star yet. That team should have won 175 games that year. I will, I will go to my grave with that. Well, it's right, funny because I'm actually, I'm just. This is a quite a quite a tangent, but I'm actually looking at it now, and I'm also shocked to learn that the the Orioles won 96 games that year, and the Tigers won 90. But going into that series, everyone was convinced that like the Tigers were going to roll them. <laughs> does it? That does it sound? Does it sound as weird to you as it does to me? Just the entire concept of an Orioles Tigers ALCS from where we sit today. <laughs> it, was, it, it was it was the DS to be clear. But, well, whatever. Uh, yes, but <laughs> it does, right at this moment. Yes, it sounds uh, it sounds uh, a, a bit odd. Anyway, so as you were saying, get, best two out of three seasons back on track. Best well, two out of three series. Let's get back on track. Yeah. So when I what I do when I want to know something interesting that requires a lot of math is I ask someone smarter than me. And in this case, I went to Tom Tango, who is our senior data analyst. And I, I kind of wanted a way to, to quantify this. And so what we did was we looked at the previous 10 seasons of regular season baseball. So from 2010 to 2019. And we only looked when the season was at least 60 games into it to try to mirror this year. And also because who cares about, you know, a two and one team versus a one and two team on March 29th. Right. And we split it into two things. First, we looked at teams where at the time of the series, there was a, a win percentage difference of at least uh, 0.75, 0.075, right? 700%. And then we also did it with a much larger difference for a win percentage difference of at least 0.150. And in both cases, it was about the same. The quote unquote better team, the team with the better winning percentage, won the series about two thirds of the time, which I think intuitively sounds right. You know, it's, it's more than half, but it's not like 98% of the time. So that means about one third of the time, the worst team is going to win. And I don't think every single one of these series is going to have a large gap in winning percentage. Sometimes it'll be almost tied. But if you if you take the Dodgers, right, they're going to be like 200 points up on the Brewers or the Phillies or the Reds or we'll get into them in a second. But isn't it all hard to see them dropping two games in three? Like, no, it happens literally all the time. And when it does, 
people will say, ah, oh, the Dodgers, they don't know how to win in October. Uh, they're not built for it. You know, they don't have the stones for it, whatever you want to say. And it's going to be straight up garbage. And I just can't wait for it. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of those Dodgers, we know they're going to be the number one seed. Um, one thing we don't know is who they're going to play. Cause I got to tell you the bottom of the NL playoff bracket is an absolute mess right now. It is such a mess that we may not even know what it looks like at the end of the regular season uh, because the Cardinals are in this mix and they missed so much time, obviously, to their COVID scare that they may, and I would guess it seems more likely than not now, have a double header to make up on Monday against Detroit. And I'm sure the Tigers would be super stoked to have to play that pair of games. Uh, I don't remember, Matt. Is that is that a home game for them or a road game? Do you, I don't do you know. Offhand? I don't know, but the... Um... The one thing to remember is the games are only going to get played if it affects home field advantage or like who's in or who's out. So if it's just to determine seeds five through eight, they're actually not going to make it. The games are just going to go by win percentage. Um, that's kind of relevant because at this point, it's pretty unlikely, although I guess possible that the Cardinals could catch the Cubs for for um, for uh, for first place. But I guess it's, and 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 kind of get into the top into the top four of the National League, in which case they get you know get into home field but because they have to make up all these games it's still like it's 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 a mess at the bottom i think anyone from i mean i guess any of these teams can end up in the eight seed it's almost hard to do the math of like figuring out oh, who might who who could and could not maybe end up as as the eight seed but i guess anyone from the cardinals marlins reds brewers giants phillies and even technically the mets has a chance to end up as the eighth seed and face the dodgers yeah there's three teams that are like officially toast, right? The Pirates are out, the Diamondbacks are out, the Nationals are out. I don't think the Rockies are technically out, but let's just be honest, they are not out. They're they're out. They're not going to get there. So yeah, if you're the Dodgers, you know you're not going to play most likely the the Braves or the Cubs and definitely not the Padres. So you're looking at all these teams, you know, St. Louis, Miami, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, San Francisco, Philly, the Mets, and you sort of if you were to ask them, I think if you were to ask Dave Roberts or any player, like, you know, which team do you want to play or not want to play? They wouldn't answer you. Right. They'd say, oh, well, you know, we're going to focus on ourselves and we don't really have a rooting interest. And that will, of course, be a straight up lie because, you know, that they, you know, they have thoughts. Right. I mean, pretty clearly to me, of those teams we just mentioned, the scariest team in a short series is the Reds because they have Trevor Bauer, who might win the Cy Young. Sonny Gray was very good. Luis Castillo who's very good. You know, the offense, a little hit or miss, but that that top three in a pitching rotation, they could beat any team two out of three. No good. I think of all the teams I mentioned, the one that they would most like to face is probably the Phillies because Hoskins is hurt. Romuto's hurt. Arietta's hurt. Harper is playing, but hurt. And I don't know. Have you seen that bullpen? <laughs> like, did you see what happened yesterday? I, I feel like yesterday's disaster where they blew both ends of a doubleheader to the Nationals including uh, getting walked off by, was it like a 32-year-old rookie in his third career start? That by itself, no matter how many games they win, that should disqualify them from consideration for the playoffs. It won't, um, but but it should. So if you're the Dodgers, do you want to play that team? Yes, you do. <laughs> Especially since I think, you know, one of the things, you know, I think yesterday they had the doubleheader against the, the Nationals, and I think the feeling was, okay, if we win both these games, um, or at least one of them, we can still maybe not have to pitch Aaron Nola on the last day of the season and save him for a game one. Um, now he's almost certainly going to have to pitch on the last day of the season if the Phillies want to. Um, now the Phillies are two games under 500. Um, so if they want, the, the, almost certainly that last game, last day of the season is going to matter for them and they're going to need to pitch Nola. 
So that like just right there, that means that he's not going to be available on full rest theoretically until game three of which means he might not even be available, you know, to pitch full rest in the wild card round, which is a big, which is a big blow for any um, Phillies chance. And that's also speaks to the Reds issue is that like so much of their strength though is them being lined up with their starters. Um, the benefit for them, of course, is that the NL starts on Wednesday. So they get that kind of extra day. And even though Trevor Bauer is being lined up to pitch twice on short rest, I think he's going to pitch today, Wednesday, and maybe again on Sunday, assuming the game matters, which it almost certainly will. Um, of course, Trevor Bauer has long said that he can pitch on short rest and that it's like he's prepared for it. Um, so theoretically, you could have Bauer on short rest twice and then have Castillo and Gray lined up for games one and two with Bauer ready to go in a potential game three on full rest. In which case the the Reds are sort of like, yeah, you rather have we probably have rather have Bauer pitch game one or two and, and save Gray for three, but at least at least like having all three of those ready to pitch in some combination makes the Reds probably the most dangerous of um of that of that group. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would also say the uh the off-brand Reds to some extent would be the Marlins because they have some sneaky good starting pitchers, like you know, Sixto Sanchez is a young rookie, but the talent is undeniable. Pablo Lopez is pretty good. But I can tell you this, if you were to ask Dodger fans which team are they the most afraid of, it's not the Reds, it's the Giants. Even The Giants aren't that good, like credit to them for even like being in this conversation, right? But uh, they've been playing over their heads for a little bit, the talent level isn't there. But if we're saying that a three-game upset is not only likely but possible, and you put a you know mediocre-ish Giants team in Dodger Stadium to face a great Dodgers team... I guarantee you that every Dodger fan would say, oh, they're going to sweep us. I have, I have absolutely no doubt they're going to come to Dodger Stadium and they're going to sweep us. Uh, and that's the worst case scenario. You lose to the Reds, like fine, stinks, whatever. You lose to the Cardinals, the Brewers, okay, you know what happens. You lose to like a rebuilding Giants team, that is the, that's the disaster. That is that is the one scenario that cannot happen. So that is the scenario that will happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I mean, in this these two or three game series, the, the Marlins, I never, I mean, I'd never thought I'd be saying this, but they're, I would be, they're a little bit of like, not an unknown, but like they, they're a lot of their players. It's like they're some, the pitchers like six though, there's you, teams know less about. And then you throw in the fact that like, they've got some decent veteran hitters, some speed. They obviously like have a, like, you know, just not just happy to be here, but like, they're not going to, there's no downside for them losing. So I could see them like really trying to like, steal bases, push teams to make plays in a way that like in a three-game playoff series could be like kind of maddening and frustrating. And um, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't want any part of them. But from the rivalry standpoint, obviously the Giants is like, I could putting myself in the shoes of a, of a Dodgers fan, if I were a Dodgers fan, that's definitely, I'm with you. That's definitely the team I would least want to face. All right, our third topic here. Uh, what is Byron Buxton doing? I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a what is happening sort of way. Byron Buxton was the number two overall pick Wow, back in 2012, are we all that old? I guess we and, are. And to, and to be clear, he was considered the best talent. And the yeah. idea at the time was that the Astros only took Carlos Correa number one overall because they were trying because they knew that Correa would sign for a smaller bonus, which would allow them the the Astros that is to spend more more of their bonus pool later in the draft. I think they got Lance McCullers Jr. as a result of that. So Buxton went into that draft as like the best player in the draft. Yeah, and Correa obviously has turned into a superstar. So no regrets for the. Uh, 
Astros there. But when you think about like what the what type of player Byron Buxton is, you think about a couple of things. You think about truly elite outfield defense. Like if he's not the best defensive outfielder in the game, he's at least in the conversation. Uh, like 99th percentile speed. He he has been at or near the top of our sprint speed leaderboards for a couple of years. Um, and then also inconsistency, right? He he gets hurt. It seems like every single year he has these like frustrating runs where he's crushing the ball and he looks like this five tool superstar. And then he'll follow it up with six weeks where it seems like he can't hit the ball at all. You know, he's never had that like one full superstar breakout season. He's actually only even had one season where he's collected 400 plate appearances because he keeps getting hurt. He's also gotten hurt this year, uh, the shoulder again. However, let me tell you about the type of player Byron Buxton is right now. Here is his up to the second from our perspective on Wednesday afternoon line. 268, 276, 610. He has 13 homers, one stolen base, and two walks. That is a 1.4% walk rate. Um, as our Andrew Simon pointed out yesterday, nobody has ever finished a season with at least 100 plate appearances and on base below 300 and is slugging above 600 and i should point out he's he's been good like his ops plus is 134 that's actually that's really good i looked this up today uh, in the entire history of baseball at least in the modern era so back to 1901 there has only been one man with an on-base percentage below 300 and a higher ops plus than byron buxton that was the immortal ron jones of the 1988 phillies uh matt do you know ron jones's place in baseball history i do not ron jones uh destroyed one of his knees running into the fence at Shea Stadium, and it was due to that that they started putting padding in at all those late '80s ballparks. Huh? Did not. Now you I know something not. about Ron Jones. Um, Byron Buxton. What? What is this? How? How do you do this? Who? Who is throwing him a strike? That's what I want to know. Um, Two other like sort of, you know, biz- to bizarre um, Buxton stats is that he has zero triples and only three doubles. So you would think that, you know, Byron Buxton with his speed would be turning some singles into doubles, but no, he only has three. And to be clear, this is not a case of like, oh, he lost his speed and has just like changed his approach because he wants to just hit homers. He is still for this season in the 99th percentile for sprint speed. Um, So basically among the fastest players in baseball, he's one for two in stolen base attempts. In 2017, he was 29 for 30. Um... So this is just like all around a, a a bizarre a bizarre season. I guess he's been, you know, effective, but it's hard to say that this is a really st- sustainable approach for Buxton beyond the twenty twenty season. <laughs> and, he, and he's hitting leadoff. Like there are very few times where I would say a leadoff man hitting or with a two seventy six on base is acceptable. <laughs> but I guess if he's doing this, it's okay. He uh he was on a Zoom call with our Allison Footer the other day, and this is a quote from him. Don't be afraid to go up there and make an out. Don't give up a fastball down the middle or get me over pitch. Go up there ready to hit. In the last week or so, it's been really good. I can tell you this. That man has gone up there ready to hit. His swing rate is up uh, from 54% to 65%. His chase rate is way up. But here's the interesting part. His strikeouts aren't up. The man is swinging at everything. He's swinging at everything out of the zone. And he's not striking out more. Uh, this is not what I would have expected from Byron Buxton. I don't know that this is really what I want from Byron Buxton, but I guess as long as he's healthy and playing good defense and crushing dingers, the twins will be okay with it. It's just like the weirdest line I think I can really ever remember. It is. And, you know, he, he was a bit someone that we, you know, in the early days of this, back when this was the StatCast podcast in 2016, 2017, he was someone we talked about a lot because he was at the time, 
you know, put when the, the defensive outs above average leaderboards first came out, he was at the top of them. And it was like, okay, this is this guy, if he could just hit a little bit, he's going to be an impact player because he's, you know, incredibly efficient stealing bases, taking extra bases and outfield defense. Like he doesn't really need to hit that much to be good. And it's, he's been good. I just like, it's, it's, it's not sustainable, right? Yeah. Like, you can't keep this up. It'll be I don't know why anyone's throwing him a strike. It'll it will be interesting to see um, what happens in the postseason um, with the Twins when you know t- teams really bear down on scouting reports and really try and um, pitch guys a certain way. If he's able to, to to do any damage at all, right now what's interesting and we talked about this recently. It looked like the Twins were lined up to definitely play the Yankees in the first round of the playoffs, which is obviously comical because they played like eight times and the Yankees have beaten them every time, including like the last, what, two of the last three seasons or three of the last four seasons. And it's just like, it's always a rollover. But right now the twins are with, can still catch the White Sox. They're tied in the win column. They're a game back in the loss column. And if I'm the twins, I really, really want to avoid playing the Yankees just because I don't have to, deal with answering questions about playing the Yankees again in the first round and hope to get a chance of just like playing someone else. Um, we'll, we'll see if that happens because I think that like um, I would not be feeling great about Bucks in a postseason series, knowing the way how teams prepare differently for, um, for the playoffs. Yeah. The, the White Sox got walked off by Jose Ramirez last night in a game where uh, I saw on Twitter that Angel Hernandez was trending. So that tells you a little something about that game in a couple hours from our point of view. Shane Bieber and Lucas Giolito face off, which is actually, I think, going to be a really fun game. Let's move on to our next segment. Let's discover a guy where we try to come up with a fascinating player maybe you have or haven't heard of. And we just talked about Byron Buxton, maybe baseball's fastest man. And let me tell you, we are going in the opposite direction. We're going to talk about our new king, Alejandro Kirk. Um, I'm not saying you don't know him. If you're a baseball fan, you've probably heard his name the last few days. But you know what? I'm still going to take a few minutes to talk about him. He is a Blue Jays catcher, but he's so much more than that. He was signed by the Jays as an international free agent out of Mexico in 2016, but he only played in one game the next year because he got into a car accident. So he has played the last two seasons at the lowest levels of the minors, rookie league and a ball. That's it. No double A, no triple A. And he had a really interesting stat line. Like he, he hit well, you know, in the minors, 315, 418, 500. That's great. Most notably, He had 89 walks and only 60 strikeouts. You know, that tells you something right there about the type of player he is. But also, he is listed charitably, I think, at 5'8", 265 pounds. Uh, As as our friend David Roth described him in The Defector the other day, he's shaped like an unusually powerful snowman, which I appreciate that. Um, He also somehow stole five bases in the minors over the last two years, including a steal of home. So I had to look this up. There's no video of it, but he was on third. There's a runner on first. The game log indicates that the runner on first broke for second and the catcher threw the ball in the center field, which I, I guess still counts as a stole, steal of home. But hey, he will take it. Um, so the Blue Jays promoted him on September 12th because their catchers were terrible. Danny Jansen has a 64 OPS plus. Reese McGuire has a negative 42 OPS plus. Yes, negative 42. That is a... 0.073 batting average and on base percentage. Mr. Kirk in his first seven games, one walk and one strikeout. That's really cool. 50% hard hit rate. Of his 16 balls in play, 
seven of them have been hit harder than 100 miles an hour. That's cool. Like that's a skill. Billy Hamilton probably doesn't have seven in his entire career. This guy's done it in a week. And also zero, not a single time, not once has he reached 25 feet per second on a run. 27 is average. North of 30 is elite. He has yet to touch 25. So I guess in this case, we can say the scouting report has lived up to expectations. This man is very slow. He makes great contact. He hits the ball hard. Uh, he is a lot of fun to watch while doing it. And to be honest, I'm done with the U. Williams Estadio. This was that was who our guy was last year. Makes a ton of contact. Uh, is a squat catcher. Uh, no, he's out. He's out. Alejandro King. We are we are here for you. If Alejandro Kirk isn't already baseball Twitter's favorite player, he soon will be. Um, I think that like in the the playoffs, I think there's gonna be a lot of people who tune in for the playoffs and are like, wait, who is this guy? I can already like I'm like already anticipating like the confused text from my dad being like, who's this guy in the blue jeans? As uh, you know, similar to David Roth, uh, Randy Jazierly uh, tweeted about Kirk. One of the great things about baseball is that players can come in all shapes and sizes. I just didn't know that one of those shapes was square. <laughs> and that, that's been my favorite Alejandro Kirk uh, uh, description thus far. I mean, the, the Blue Jays right now are pretty well locked in as the eighth seed in the American League. The one seed is still up, up for grabs. And I think that, like, I mean, the Rays are pretty much earned the driver's seat um, to, to, to win it. Um, but I do think they really do want to make sure you clinch it because I think the difference between the Blue Jays and the Indians, just because of the Indians pitching, is a pretty significant one because the Indians are well positioned to be able to set up their rotation um, going into the wild card, in which case, you know, they aren't, I mean, as, as, as rough as their offense is, um, they're basically like a one-man offense right now. Um, you would, I think you'd much rather face the, um, the Blue Jays than the Indians uh, when the Indians can line up their starters. So um, I think that Blue, potential Blue Jays-Rays series could be really fascinating, assuming the Rays, <laughs> the Rays hold on uh, with, the, uh, with the number one seed, the American League. Yeah, you know, it, it just on the Blue Jays for a second. If you go back over their last uh, one, two, three, four series, over, back to September 11th against the Mets. So they played the Mets, the Yankees, the Phillies, the Yankees. In the games that they have lost, here are the amount of runs that they have allowed. 18, 20, 13, 10, 7, 8, 3, and 12. <laughs> like Hyunjin Ryu has been very, very good. And that's the end of that sentence. <laughs> um. Yes. Um, now it's my turn to discover a guy. And we're going to talk about uh, White Sox left-handed pitcher Garrett Crochet, who is a rookie who was just called up um, a few days ago. Well, what makes Crochet so interesting is that he was the 11th overall pick in the 2020 draft. That's right. He was drafted this year, and he pitched – actually, because of a shoulder injury, he pitched only one game in college baseball this year. He played the University of Tennessee. Tennessee – Played 17 games only, and it was cut short because of COVID. He only pitched in one of them, and he has already pitched in three games for the White Sox. And what makes Crochet so interesting is that he is, well, he's left-handed, and he throws the ball really, really, really hard. Um, and basically all he does is throw fastballs. Um, last night against the Indians, the game that Mike was just alluding to, he comes into a 1-1 game in the eighth inning, um, with Lindor, Hernandez, and Ramirez. Which Hernandez is? Cesar Hernandez Cesar. and Jose Ramirez do but, well. But the point here is these are dudes. These are like yeah, Lindor, exactly. Jose Ramirez. Like this guy's in his third pro game here. 19 pitches, 18 fastballs, 11 of those fastballs at 100 mile an hour plus, 17 of those at 99 mile an hour plus, um, 
four whiffs on eight swings. He has now thrown uh, in his in his three outings. He has now thrown uh, forty seven pitches in the majors. Forty of them have been fastballs. <laughs> so with an average velocity of one hundred point two miles per hour, average, <laughs> average. <laughs> there is not. I mean, like there's no there's no track record on the guy. He's, he hasn't even never pitched in a minor league game. It's just just a f- fascinating player that he could come in and be like the secret weapon for the White Sox going into the playoffs. A few years ago, you know, we did like an evergreen story for major league uh, for MLB.com of like all the players who made it to the majors without ever playing it, who were you know, whatever ever playing in a minor league game, obviously not counting guys from Japan and Korea. Um, you know, guys who just basically were drafted and went straight to the majors. And we basically like when it happened, the last one that happened, we were like, well, this is never going to, I think Mike Leake was the last one. It was like, well, this is obviously never going to happen again. Um, but well, you know, we have this story just like for, for search purposes so that someone can go like Google it and be like, oh, who's, who are the players who never played the minor league game? Well, now we had someone else surprisingly to add to the list. And this guy's like in the postseason, like people are going to be like, whoa, who is this guy? And well, now you know a little bit about this guy. Yeah, I mean, it's there have been guys not quite to this extent before, I don't think, but you think of like K Rod, you know, back in 2002, but at least he came up, you know, he had pitched in the minors before, right? I mean, this is going to be a guy who's going to be deployed and he's going to pop 102 all the time. He's thrown 47 pitches, 24 of them have been over 100 miles an hour. He's been in the big leagues for 10 minutes, and there's only two guys who've thrown more 100 mile an hour pitches uh, than he has, and that's Bruce Dargraderall and Josh Stallman. And he's interesting because we know the White Sox are going to the playoffs and the White Sox have a quietly good bullpen. They have allowed a 296 weighted on base. That's fourth best. And if you look at the top three, Dodgers, Rays, and Oakland, I mean, that's tells you a lot. That's a pretty good bullpen. And they've got this interesting mix. They've got these veterans like Steve Ciszek and Ross Detweiler and, and Alex Colomay, some new guys like Crochet and, and rookies, Cody Hewer and, and Matt Foster. And then these guys who are like, quietly good veterans who are injured but could be back soon like evan marshall and you know aaron bummer over the last year and a half has been like a top 10 pitcher in baseball because he gets a ton of grounders i don't know if the white Sox uh are gonna go that far i mean i i have never been that high on their rotation outside of giolito although i'll say that keiko has been pretty good but i'm pretty interested to watch this bullpen because they've got a, a bunch of guys nobody knows right and i i think they're gonna be pretty good um definitely and he will be he will be another one of those guys who like in the postseason fans tuning in are gonna be like wait who's this dude this lefty this tall lefty throwing 102 miles an hour um someone sort of, i saw someone on twitter compare it to kind of like you know in terms of his his delivery and release to like a chapman and obviously the velocity and like you can kind of see it he has kind of this like he has like his his front leg has like a kind of a stiff extension like chapman and he comes from that kind of slinging um um three quarters delivery so there's there's definitely some um some some uh some similarities there all right we're going to finish off as we do each week uh with our our purpose pitch our closing rant and i should point out by the way if you want to know more about garrick Rocher, the mlb pipeline podcast just did a whole bit on him and they focus on prospects and know a lot more about them than we do so definitely check out our friends over there um my purpose pitch is about the national league cy young award and one aspect of it that people are, are trying to overthink i think um it's like a four-way tie, I guess, between DeGrom and you, Darvish, and Corbin Burns, Trevor Bauer, right? And you can argue for Kershaw, Denelson LeMay, but it's probably going to be one of those four guys. One of the arguments I've seen is that those guys who are pitching in the central have been the benefit of much weaker offenses, and therefore Jake DeGrom should get a boost. 
and I guess I get where that's coming from, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure I buy it. I mean, first of all, you know, it's hard to use stats like, you know, ERA plus and OPS plus when those are adjusted to the entire league. And we don't have leagues, as we already talked about. We've got three different groupings. Um, I My problem with this is, though, it is true, I think, that the central teams have worse offenses. I wonder how much of it is the chicken and the egg. Because look at how many great pitchers there are in the central, right? Not DeGrom, but the guys I mentioned, and also Shane Bieber. Kyle Hendricks, Giolito, Keuchel, Plesak, Savali. Uh, we don't talk about Kenta Maeda enough, but if not for Bieber, he might be the Cy Young. So I'm not entirely sure that the central teams have bad hitters because they have bad hitters or because there's so much good pitching. And either way, I'm not sure it matters. You know, like you look at DeGrom, are the Eastern Division teams harder, uh, better offenses maybe? Um, but he also got to face the Marlins four times in a row. And like, they're fine. They're not that great. You know, it's not exactly like an equal distribution where he spent a month facing, you know, the, the Yankees and like the Blue Jays. So I know that everybody is just dying for some sort of tiebreaker here. I don't think this is it. I'm not buying it. I don't think I would uh, include this in my consideration whatsoever. I think that's a really good point. It also speaks to just the idea of how this year in general, just all of the like, you know, we, we rely very heavily on things like OPS plus and weight runs created plus, which are kind of geared towards controlling for the league average and for park effects. So that like 100 is league average and, you know, above it is better and below it is, you know, below average. And those are usually really useful stats in most seasons. And I'm not, I'm not saying we should totally discard them in this season, but like they really mean a lot less. You, you definitely have to put like a little like asterisk next to OPS plus and weight runs created plus when you consider the teams are only playing in a small subset of bar, ballparks against a small subset of competition with the kind of schedule quirks you mentioned where like the Grom faced the Marlins in four straight starts. So it's like, it's hard to know. The votes are going to be a mess. There's not going to be a clear cut winner because everyone's going to come to it with their kind of their own, their own viewpoint. Some people will probably end up waiting strength of competition. Some will probably ignore it entirely more so than usual. There will not be a consistent approach to how voters view the award. And so we'll probably end up with, you know, all these guys getting about the same number of first place votes and, um, We'll see where it goes. I think the one potential tiebreaker could be, you know, with the Reds on the – Bauer has the best chance for kind of like the moment, making two straight starts on short rest. If he kind of pitches really well on short rest and two straight starts to end the season and the Reds make the playoffs because of those two great performances, I think that might propel – that might be the tiebreaker that propels him um, above the field. But, of course, if he pitches poorly, then <laughs> – That'll knock him, knock him totally off the pedestal. So then he'll kind of kind of remove himself from, from the discussion. I guess we'll, we we will find out um, starting today when Bauer makes that uh, his second to last start of the season. Speaking of awards, I want to finish with my purpose pitch, which is about the National League Rookie of the Year award. And for most of the year, it seemed like Padres second baseman Jake Cronenworth was the runaway, the runaway winner with. Kind of good reason. He was, you know, at, at moments like actually having as good potentially or better statistical season um, than his middle infield mate, Fernando Tatis uh, Jr. And even now, as as we as we record, Jake Cronenworth is hitting 304, 373, 513, which is a very impressive line for a second baseman who also rates pretty well on outs above average, our defensive metric at StatCast. That said, the National League Rookie of the Year needs to be Brewers reliever, Devin Williams. Not only does he have a fantastic statistical case, I mean, the numbers are just kind of, they're, they're kind of ridiculous. He's striking out more than 55% of batters that he, um, 
that he has faced this year. It's uh, his ERA is is zero point three six. Um, it's watching him pitch. It's not just a statistical argument. Watching Devin Williams pitch is there's something just like visually like pleasing about it. Unlike his teammate Josh Hader, who is a dominant reliever in his own right, you know Josh Hader is kind of like overpowers you in a way that almost doesn't seem fair. It kind of reminds me in the late '90s when people would compare Randy Johnson versus Pedro Martinez, right? And I think statistically, Randy Johnson was right there with Pedro Martinez, but there was something about the way Pedro pitched, and he had this this changeup that just like just it was he it was it it just dropped and. Hitters could not hit it no matter how hard they tried. He was the small right-hander who was just dicing up the best hitters in the league in a way that you couldn't imagine. And that's kind of when I see David, Devin Williams. Similar, he's not a big guy, but he throws uh, he throws 95, and he has this pitch, which they call a changeup, which it's not really a changeup. I don't, I don't really think – he calls it a changeup, so it gets listed as a changeup, but he throws it where he kind of pronates his wrist, and the ball has a lot of spin on it. In fact, it has like – you know, it's like 2,800 RPMs, which is um, like most changeups are around 2,000. So it's like, it actually in many ways behaves more like a curveball. I almost think that I've heard some people say it should be called a screwball. I almost think it needs its own classification, maybe call it like the tumbler, but hitters just can't hit it. Like I was watching him against the Reds last night and he struck out Joey Votto, uh, Eugenio Suarez and Mike Moustakas in succession. Strike three swinging all three times was with this changeup, this off-speed pitch and they all missed it by about a foot. So when you factor in statistics, the fact that he's pitching high leverage situations for a team on the fringe of contention, that he's arguably been the best reliever in baseball this season at least, I really hope that he ends up winning the National League Rookie of the Year award. I am down with this. I don't always agree with your hot takes, but this one I'm completely here for because every time I see a story written about the NL Rookie of the Year, it's Cronenworth, it's Alec Baum, and like Sixto Sanchez, right? Those guys are all very good and deserving, but I don't know how you look past this guy who struck out 52 in 25 innings. Is it a small sample? Sure. Can you fake that? Absolutely not. I do think Cronenworth has sort of lost it by the fact that he hasn't been that good the last couple of weeks. Um, he's actually hitting somewhat worse or slightly similar now to, to Alec Baum, who has almost caught up in plate appearances. Cronenworth is a better defender, sure, but I don't think it's as much of a slam dunk anymore. I think you can argue for like, you know, Tony Gonsolin's been very good. Um, I think Sixto Sanchez might have the best career going forward. Ian Anderson's been pretty good. I have Cardinal fans keep asking me, well, why not, you know, Kwang Young Kim, who has a 159 ERA, He's also striking out five per nine. It's not going to be him. I'm very sorry. I'll say this though. If I had a vote, I would vote for Devin Williams and I would, I can't do it because he hasn't played enough, but the guy I think is actually going to be the best, at least on the hitting side is Cabrian Hayes of Pittsburgh, who has his reputation through the minors of being a truly elite defensive third baseman and has been crushing the ball so far. He's got a, he's his line right now is 323, 397, 585. Now he's got less than half of the plate appearances the other guys do, so he's not going to win. Um, but he's the guy I might remember the most. But anyway, as far as your hot take goes, I'm with you. Devin Williams. Do you think he's going to win? I don't think he's going to win. The way he's pitched, I think I, he's starting – I feel like he's starting to get a little more momentum, but it's, it's just really hard for a reliever to win to win any of these awards. Um, I really hope – I mean, personally, I'm hoping – you know, I'm sort of rooting for the Brewers to make the postseason because I want to see – get him – have him – have the opportunity to pitch on the postseason stage and for like more of the baseball world to get a view of this guy. Cause you know, we've talked about this a lot where like the best reliever in baseball title, like it changes hands quickly. It's really hard to sustain it just because of the nature of the, 
the role. And I think that like at this moment in 2020, he has been for like the last like five to six weeks, um, the best reliever in the game. And I want to sort of see him get, have more fans be exposed to it. Cause his, his, this, this off speed pitch um, is really, it's really something else. And he's, he's really fun to watch. I will argue that Drew Pomerantz has yet to allow an earned run. And I know that earned runs are not everything and he's not striking out guys like Devin Williams is, but he is up there in the conversation uh, with Nick Anderson and Liam Hendricks for me. And maybe Devin Williams, who I think Matt and I agree we are full speed on board the Devin Williams for National League Rookie of the Year. He's not going to win, I don't think, but I would vote for him. That is our show for this week. Uh, we are going to be back in a couple days, a little bit sooner than we usually are, where we will try to have a postseason preview. This is going to depend a little bit on the Cardinals. So if those guys wanted to sort that out by the end of the weekend, that would be wonderful. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thanks for listening.